I'm Jenny Redmond. Welcome to Story Etc. Food is an evocative subject. For many, it can provoke a lot of enthusiasm, whereas for others it might just be fuel or even something difficult which might need to be dealt with on an everyday basis. What was really interesting for us is that it's also an incredible tool for writers and how they build up their characters' worlds. With each description of how someone cooks or what they eat, how they make tea, and whether they put the milk in first, which is fine, apparently, comes new insight and brings us closer to that character. In this episode, we're talking to people about how food features in their stories. I recommend having snacks available. I'm here with Eleanor Rushton. Hello. And we're doing... For a podcast, what we normally do without recording, which is to talk about food. Yeah, it occupies about 98% of my waking thoughts and 100% of my dreaming <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> Specifically food in fiction and obviously food in storytelling as, as um, what this podcast focuses on. So what what does that come from with you? What are you thinking about when you try and think about food in fiction? I love food in books to the point where... If a book is lacking a good meal, I judge it harshly. Give me an example. Or what are some good meals in books? I really love it. Well, this is also topical. The pie from Danny Champion of the World with the hard-boiled eggs, like buried treasures. Or when they go to the beaver's house for tea and have like a marmalade roll in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I am aware these are all children's books. Um, <laughs> Vittles. Yeah. Anything where there's vittles. Exactly. I love it. I love a ship's biscuit. <laughs> um. no, okay, so what about a book where there hasn't been a meal and you loved it and then you got to the end and thought, there hasn't been any food in this book? Uh, I feel like most books are kind of lacking in food. It's a sad state of affairs. I... <laughs> I'm thinking of the book I'm reading at the moment. Which is what? Cavalier and Clay. Oh, I was read. just thinking of that. That's funny. I can't think of a meal. No, that's that's too funny. I was mm. actually thinking of that book and trying to hunt for, hunt in it for a good a good meal. Not necessarily a good meal. They talk about um, when they're staying up all night drawing, mm. somebody goes out for like half a chicken. Yeah. It's not a good meal. No. Although I'm not I'm partial to half a chicken, to be honest. Maybe even a whole, depending on my mood. Mm. So clearly one of the best bits of working on a podcast is getting to interview people about things you love. It's a perk of the job. So when we decided on food as an episode focus, I decided to completely pander to my own interests and speak to somebody about one of my favourite authors. Bonus, I got to take myself on a little day trip at the same time. My name's Rachel White and I'm the Collections Manager and Archivist at the Roald Dahl Museum and Story Centre in Great Missenden. Obviously I read Roald Dahl as a child, I think probably everybody has read Roald Dahl at some point in their lives and coming here you just get to delve into these stories which you grew up with as a child 
and just get into the background of the stories and how they developed, how Roald Dahl came up with them, and find out often quite interesting facts about them in the background. It's also great working for a children's museum. Um, it's, it's lovely sharing these stories with other people and with children and their parents and their grandparents and bring them out to a wider audience. So food. Food. Yes. It, having done some reading around this, I've, I've realised how much it invades his entire work. And I think it goes back to his early family. Um, to give a bit of background for his family, he was, his parents were Norwegian. They moved to Wales to live in Cardiff. His dad was a, a merchant shipper, um, ship, shipping company. And the family went back to Norway every summer for the summer holidays. Um, his mum was a great cook. She was, wasn't a sort of posh cook. She was a sort of family cook. But she brought in these Scandinavian Nordic recipes into her cooking. And I think it infused his childhood. So um, in, he did a memoir called Memory of, uh, Memories of Food in the Gypsy House and the Roald Dahl Cookbook. And this is sort of part memoir, part recipe book. And he talks about his childhood, he, he gets his sisters to contribute recipes, his wife and his children contribute recipes. And it does feel like a very sort of personal thing. But he talks about his favorite dish, and it's boiled chicken, which sounds really quite boring. But he describes it very lovingly, how his mum would do this sort of boiled chicken with new potatoes and a, a nice sauce on the side. And it does sound really nice, actually. Um, and again, things like they'd go, they go to Norway, they go out in the boats on the, on the fjords, and they, they go fishing. And they would then cook this amazingly fresh fish, fried with some boiled new potatoes on the side, and that would be it. And he said it was the most simple but delicious food. Um, so you get this real sense of him enjoying food and having food as a centre point to his family growing up. One thing I noticed was that there's a lot of starvation in some of the books. So the foxes starve, Charlie and his family are starving before they get to having the chocolate. Mm -hmm. But he builds this up, so when Charlie finally does get his hands on a bunch, uh, on a bar of uh, fudge mallow with the scrumptious yep. fudge mallow delight, he really drew, takes you into this sensation of this creamy milky chocolate and how delicious it is. Um, and because he's emphasised the fact that all Charlie's had to eat for the past few weeks is cabbage soup and half a boiled potato, it makes it even more impactful when he finally does get his hands on the chocolate. Never mind going to the chocolate factory itself. But what I, what, I was, what I was thinking when I was reading this was that there is um, the description of food is very, very precise. He really wants his readers to be thinking about the taste of the food, the texture of the food, the process of eating. Um, there's a brilliant bit in Danny Chapel of the World where it's a very tiny scene. Danny's been given a pie by Doc Spencer's wife, the local doctor's wife. His dad's in hospital and they're worried that this little boy in his caravan isn't getting enough to eat, so they bring him around this pie. And I've got, it, I've got the quote because it's such a good one. Um, he unwraps it to find the most enormous and beautiful pie in the world. It was covered with a rich golden pastry. The meat was pink and tender with no fat or gristle in it. And there were hard boiled eggs buried like treasure in several different places. And he gets a knife and he cuts a couple of slices and just devours them. And I just think this is very symptomatic of Dahl's writing. It's very clean writing. It's very spare writing. He doesn't embellish things unnecessarily. But he puts you right into that point in time with this little boy with this golden pastry pie with boiled eggs. And when I was reading that as a child, that stayed with me. So even now, if I see a gala pie, I'm just there. <laughs> and so with um, Fantastic Mr Fox, you really get this enjoyment. And what I... what did come to my attention when looking around the subject was that even if it's food you don't necessarily want to eat yourself, 
you can really identify with the character who does want to eat it. So for the foxes, the foxes are talking about essentially raiding the duck house, the chicken house, the goose house, and they get all these foxes, of course, eat their meat raw. But somehow he still manages to make what they're describing sound mouth-watering. So four plump ducks and a goose. And you're thinking already, this sounds amazing. And then he gets onto the smoked ham and the bacon and the cider. And he's talking about how the cider makes the feast a banquet. And suddenly you're right there with these animals. Um, you want to sit at their table. You want to have what they're having, even though they're not going to be cooking the food. Um, and it's this ability to make you want what the characters are having. And it's really clever how he does it. I think he enjoyed shocking people. And he loves, I think he loved having children have that slightly grotesque, nasty uh, element to his reading. He wanted children to go, you, in a good way. So the twits, I can't read the bit with the beard and the cornflakes and the sardines. It makes me heave ever so slightly. My sons love it because they're the right age for it. He wrote it for them, not for adults. Um, but yeah, he, he, he generates that feeling of disgust alongside that sort of desire to eat. But then, you know, with Augustus Gloop going up the chocolate pipe, this is a child who's too greedy. And it's also, I don't think he ever meant to moralise, but it does come over possibly as a, you know, as a moralistic element to his stories. If you overdo it, if you don't, if you take food for granted, if you don't appreciate food, you might come to a sticky end. So Augustus Gloop is too greedy. He gulls things down without appreciating the good things. Um, and he gets... He gets squished and squiddled up the pipe, and then he, he comes out a bit a lot thinner than he did. Um, so yeah, I think that there's elements of uh, he gets his comeuppance from that just because he didn't appreciate what he had. It's quite interesting about the, the moralistic side. Mm. Um, he never I'm consciously moralised. I mean, I think he, he, he's, he's been on record to say I didn't. You know, I don't write stories to have moral truths in them. They're there for entertainment. They're fairy tales. Um, but I think he still did moralise without realising possibly. So. And do you think that, um, particularly on food, so you mentioned mm. obviously a couple of characters are starving or starve yeah, during yeah. their stories. So he obviously didn't come from a particularly rich background and would have spent a lot of time during the, in the military being quite rationed. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was wondering about this, where this came from, mm. because, yeah, as you say, this fantastic Mr Fox's family is starving, the buckets are starving. Um, there is kind of deprivation there, and I was wondering if there was a, a basis in his own life. The, what I thought about maybe his school days. And I think an English public school in the 30s was actually quite a Spartan affair. They, they didn't have a lot of creature comforts. Um, in Boy, he describes the headmaster of his prep school going up to mum and parents dropping their kids off, saying, yeah, you will remember, they do like a good nice tuck box. And uh, you don't want him to be the only child who doesn't have a nice homemade cake. And I suspect what happened was that they gave the boys um, the kind of the meat and veg and the sort of the bare necessities to keep, keep them going. But anything above and beyond, nice puddings didn't really exist. They were expected to be augmented from home for the, for the, for the nice things in life. It wasn't necessarily a treat, it was what you needed if you were a growing lad, you need lots of calories if you're going to be running around. Um, so they would be very much encouraged, the parents, it was probably a way of the school kind of augmenting their food budget as well, you know, get parents to do the work by sending them cakes and the biscuits. Um, so I wonder if there was an element of deprivation for Roald Dahl as he was growing up, never maybe having quite enough in the way of sweet things. Again, going back to Boy, um, he had that element of the you know, the sweet shop where he goes to the um, He hates Mrs. Pratchett, 
but he describes sweet as being his lifeblood, his, his friend's lifeblood. They're prepared to risk anything to get their hands on some sugar, essentially. So they would go and put up with Mrs. Pratchett being foul and disgusting um, in order to get their hit of sweets. And then you have later on, when he was at Repton School, he would be um, asked with the other boys to do chocolate tasting for Cadbury's. And I think this had a massive impact on him. He didn't realise, for example, that there was a, such a, a thing as a chocolate inventor. He didn't realise this was even a life career choice. And now he realises there are people in rooms with white coats on creating chocolate. That's an amazing thing if you're a small boy of 13 to suddenly have that light bulb revelation. And he did use it for Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. In fact, Willy Wonka becomes, um, he, I think he's the central character of that story long before Charlie came up. Um, one of the things I brought out to show you, Joss doesn't translate to uh, radio, but uh, well, uh, audio, is the first draft of Charlie. And the very first draft of that is essentially Willy Wonka curating things. Charlie's not in it. It's just about Willy Wonka's creativity and the things he created and the things he made. It talks about Chocolate Village inside an Easter egg. Um, it's incredibly intricate and it, it feels like an outpouring of this sort of need to get down these ideas of the chocolate inventor. I wanted to go and speak to the Royal Dahl Museum because when we started planning this episode, um, it struck me as a as a very obvious link between food and uh, well, well, food in stories. Uh, and there's certain parts of um, Roald Dahl books that have stuck with me since I was really, really tiny. But actually, the more I looked into this, the more research I did, the more reading I did, and the more remembering I did, the more food that comes out in in Roald Dahl books that you, you don't think about mm. and it's everywhere and it's actually a really it permeates everything he does and like we, we were saying earlier um it is that em emotional connection and it's the memory it's the um it's the memory of his of his mother via the um fish they used to catch when they used to go out in a boat in norway and boy and then they'd freshly catch them and then they'd have just new potatoes and and that was it and it's that it's it's entirely emblematic of his childhood, that meal. His childhood is that. And then the crack and, is it crack and ice cream that they'd have? Yeah, yeah. like burnt toffee one. I burnt remember toffee. that from Boy. Yeah. And then stemming into the books, obviously you've got the big ticket items. You've mm. got Charlie and chocolate, obviously. Indeed. You've got Bruce Bob Trotter. Yes, indeed. But then you've got things like the witches. The, you know, the... the um, Yatus cheese. Yatus, but also the soup at the end. What's the soup at the end? It's where he puts the... <gasps> yes! And then you've got worm spaghetti and, yes. and beard breakfast and frobscottle. Snozcumbers. Snozcumbers. Yeah. And even where people are talking about eating, like, for example, even where the giants talk about making yeah. children into food and stuff. That's so true. And then there's also the stuff that... Yeah, as you say, like it, it's a storyteller, mm -hmm. and yet it also so frequently returns to that idea of an emotional link to it. So, like the way the BFG talks about Frobscottle, or the way that Danny talks about the pie, mm -hmm. are more like the way, yes, he talks about ice cream and fish in Boy. So it's not just these plot points. It's not just it's you know that 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 pie in Danny has nothing to do with anything, really, but you remember that pie. Yeah, I do. He also released a recipe book. 
I think I owned that. I think I owned that as well. I remember making the Bruce Bogtrotter cake when I was about 12. I feel like I tried to make maybe Frobscottle, mm-hmm. which I think was some sort of ice cream float. That makes sense. I think that's what I made. Oh, it's amazing. It also gives him that space to be really imaginative. Mm. Yeah. Because you can just go, as we saw with Charlie, you can just do whatever you want, really, can't you, if you're making up food for kids. The grosser it is, the more fun it is, the most bizarre it is, the more your audience is going to react. Yeah. The one I'm thinking of now is, do you remember the bit in Matilda where she goes to Miss Honey's for tea? Mm-hmm. And bread she, and jam, isn't it? it um, bread and margarine. Bread. And Matilda comments on the fact that she would always have had butter and jam at home mm-hmm. and that the margarine wasn't that bad. Like, I, like he just takes the time to make those kind of social comments about food as well. Well, like the fact in Danny, I feel, I think that, I remember there's someone who loves their tea, like very, very strong. Like he takes the mm-hmm. time to, to note those things as well. That's an interesting thing actually about that Matilda scene because as a kid, you probably wouldn't think, oh, margarine... That means she's poor. Mm. Yeah. But you would know. Yeah. I quite like Marjorie. Mighty. If you are interested in Roald Dahl's work, I would definitely recommend a trip to the Roald Dahl Museum. It will make you feel like a giddy kid again, I promise. Next up, we're proud to present a monologue written by Alexander Danner, creator of the Greater Boston podcast, This is Serving Suggestions. They ate the youngest child not long after his ninth birthday. The boy didn't mind. He was a wheel of cheese, after all, and had achieved his peak flavour. He wanted to be eaten. It's what he was for. Better, certainly, than going to mould. His sister was a wine bottle three years his elder, the sturdy middle child who held the family together throughout all their tribulations. She was born with a tapered neck and a flat bottom and striking cobalt glass. Tragically, her colour didn't last. By her twelfth year she had faded to a common green, pale and yellowed like autumn grass. But she didn't mind. Not really. That was the year of the baby's eating. He had come into the world soft, held together only by the wax he was born with. Now he was firm and ripe. With a sharp knife, the proud parents peeled back his waxy skin to reveal the milky flesh beneath, one small section at a time. The sister stood support for them all, never worried for herself. Born without a cork, she held nothing back from those who needed her, always ready to fill an empty cup. When the family swallowed the final bites of their beloved cheese, the wine bottle offered the toast in his honour, weeping out a sweet and grassy mead to best compliment the salty sharpness of her brother's farewell. 
The eldest child was the disappointment of the family. He was born a man with nothing of himself to give. His parents loved him as best they could, saw what value they could in him as the only means to perpetuating the family. The cheese wheel was gone after all, and a bottle begets no bottles. But the man resolved to disappoint his parents still further. He had no intention to marry, no desire for heirs. He leaned on his sister more than anyone, so that the parents worried for them both. In time, he became a baker, and his parents were satisfied. They saw how hard he worked to compliment his siblings, to offer the world something as worthy as they. Only the sister saw the reproach in his work. They had served the youngest on cheap crackers. Well, now he turned out the perfect baguette, the proper pairing to wine and cheese. Too late. Too late. Too late. That was Serving Suggestions, written by Alexander Danner and was read by Felix Trench, directed by Eleanor Rushton. Food isn't by any means easy for everyone. Our next segment deals with disordered eating. If you're triggered by issues to do with eating disorders, you might find this section a little bit difficult. So in the the play I was speaking to Mariam about Strawberry Starburst, it follows the sort of rise and fall, as it were, of this of the of the um, protagonist's journey through disordered eating. For people who are coming at these stories from a place of experience. I mean, food can be such a triggering thing to talk about. And for all the enjoyment I personally get from talking about food, it took me a really long time to realise that it was not just something that some people were not that interested in. It's something that people maybe just don't don't want to engage with, that don't want to go there. So it's quite an interesting thing in stories in, in the sense that it becomes this, I guess, like a tool of control, a tool of self-improvement in huge inverted commas. You know, it's a, it's something that is divested of the kind of, the idea of it as a purely sen- sensual pleasure. That's not what the food becomes about. Hello, my name's Mariam Grace and I'm an actor. Hi, Mariam. Hi. Um, So, to start with, could you tell us a little bit about Strawberry Starburst? Yeah. So, Strawberry Starburst is a one-woman show, so it's essentially one long monologue. And it's about a teenage girl called Shez and her journey um, into developing anorexia. And it's a fictional story, but obviously it's based on a lot of real life stories. The writer Bram did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people who had been through similar experiences. And it's essentially a play that's about how easy it can be to fall into an eating disorder 
and it is also a comedy as well. It's not all doom and gloom, mm-hmm. but it's it's just about this girl and what happens to her and what goes through her head and how, you know, just the smallest thing can trigger something like that. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting story. In terms of how you approached, I suppose, finding your way into that mm. character, what kind of... I don't did you find out things that surprised you like what was the process of doing that because it's such a big kind of psychological journey she yeah goes through. absolutely I, f- I found a lot out that surprised me actually because when I first read the script I I didn't really have much of a knowledge about eating disorders and I just had a very general sort of knowledge of them had known a couple of people with them but it's one of those things that I I thought I understood but I actually didn't and um uh I spoke to a couple of ambassadors from the charity beat which is a fantastic eating disorders charity um Bram had also spoken to them when he was writing the script as well and I spoke to them about um what they see in people who come in with eating disorders, come in asking for help. And the similarities between them, and one of the things that surprised me, but actually makes a lot of sense, is that in most cases, it's people that are perfectionists and it's a way of gaining control over their lives. So it's not necessarily about the food itself. It's about having that control and choosing what you want to eat and what you don't want to eat. And the thing that also surprised me um, from talking to them and also talking to other people I knew who had been through um, eating disorders in the past and reading up and watching documentaries, that sort of thing, um, is that it's not something that ever leaves you, I guess, like most mental health disorders. um, You know, you will always have that in your head and it's just about learning to cope with it it's not like one day you decide to start eating again and it's gone and you never think about it again you'll always have a different relationship with food and that's why it can come back so easily and it does for a lot of people um yeah so I suppose the process was at first just researching and I was very keen to not kind of gloss over anything or or generalize so that was my main priority was to try and bring out the kind of real life of it and the real life experience um and also put that into my own performance and I spoke to a lot of people about kind of mannerisms and um mood swings that people with eating disorders will generally have and the way that they'll be physically and um vocally as well and it all of that I think just helped to build an idea and the character and and obviously the script as well um yeah so it was it was a lot of research in terms of um sort of material you'd maybe come across before encountering strawberry starburst Mm. I mean kind of eating disorders are quite prominent in lots of 
I mean, I certainly read lots of, of books as a teenager with yeah. people in, in them and stuff like that. Is there anything you've kind of either revisited since doing Strawberry Starburst or can you think of anything that I'd either chimes with what you've now learned or mm. you think, I don't know, the world, you think the world's moved on a bit from that depiction or maybe, or something like that? Hmm, I think... Um... That's a really interesting question. I don't know. I don't know if I've revisited anything that I'd sort of seen or read previously. Uh, I think definitely the way that I would look at material now in regards to eating disorders would be different compared to how I looked at it before. Maybe it's it's more a case of conversations with people because I think um, a lot of people, and certainly myself, before researching this topic thought that um you know the way that you deal with someone with an eating disorder is just to get them eating again but actually it's not that simple and it's about highlighting the psychological root of it you know what's triggered it what's going on in their head what what has somebody said to them or what do they think about themselves or what do they not have control over that actually needs to be addressed before well, not necessarily before the food, but, you know, that's the fundamental root of it. So I think that that's probably the thing that I'd be most interested now in similar stories, you know, where does it come from? Not necessarily the details of what they're doing, but like, how does it start? And then how do you target it to, to you know, help them to, to cure, not cure, but, you know make it less of a problem the way that she kind of lists food and like food mm-hmm. like sort of actual dishes come up yeah as yeah. a means for her to keep track of what she's doing and then mm-hmm. for the audience to kind of I suppose latch on to the to how she's hinging her whole day around it mm-hmm. and that kind of thing Were there was there any reaction to that element of it because like how you'd actually used food and talked about food itself alongside mm-hmm. the the sort of general the more general idea of wanting to lose weight yeah yeah I mean from from things that I'd read and, and a lot of websites as well there's horrible websites where mainly girls but some um boys as well will uh compare notes on anorexia and will be very proud of their diets and a lot of that obsession is around the specific foods that they eat. And um, because I think at the heart of it, it is an obsession. It's an obsession with being restrictive and with only eating certain types of food or certain foods. Um, and also with exercise as well and calorie counting. So for a lot of people, and yes, certainly people that I spoke to, it was this, you know, some people would constantly be writing down what they were eating, making lists, how many calories were in those foods, how many calories they were burning, doing whatever exercise they were doing. Um, so yeah, absolutely, it is a hinge point. And I guess it's a marker of your success if that's your mindset, you know, is, oh, today I actually managed to cut out one of those things. Great, you know, it can start with, I'm going to eat half a pack of Rivita's, um And then it can be, actually, I'm only going to eat three. Actually, if I can eat three, I can eat one. Actually, I can just eat half a day. So I guess just 
the physical food becomes the target like how little can you eat and and it can become a competition with yourself with others if you're on these websites where people will compete um which is horrible but that's the way it is and um a lot of the things that I read and speaking to people as well is that that can be an issue in um some treatment centers as well is that people will compete with others and they'll see how much someone else is eating and they'll think I can eat less than that there was one documentary in particular I watched on YouTube that was really interesting because one of the girls in it who suffered from anorexia was a nutritionist and she was she was talking to the interviewer and she was saying I understand that for the human body to survive, you need however many calories a day, I can't remember. Um, but I think I can survive on less. So it's not necessarily an ignorance um, of health and nutrition. It's It can sometimes be a, yeah, I know that that's the case, but actually I don't have to do that. Um, which isn't to say that it's an arrogance thing, but it's, again, it's a control thing. It's a power thing. It's a way for you to feel empowered and you know, a sense of achievement, I guess. What were reactions like to your performance, either from people you knew who kind of saw you doing this, like it, it was distressing to watch, yeah. um, but also from, from other people who'd seen it? Yeah, it was really interesting seeing the reactions, actually, both times I've done it. We had a lot of people coming along who had suffered from eating disorders in the past, um, and some of them said that it, it did ring true with their own experiences and they did see bits of themselves or family members and, or, you know, that they wished that they had seen it when they were younger and it would help them to understand what they were going through a bit more, which is of course why theatre like that's really important. Um, and some people had very visceral reactions to it. We had people walk out because they found it quite difficult to deal with, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly if they had had family members that had gone through that, you know, it's, it's always a raw, it's a very raw subject, it's very sensitive for some people and especially a monologue when you're just talking to the audience and they feel so involved in that world, it can be a lot for people to handle. Um, yeah, we definitely had people becoming quite emotional that was great and it was great to I guess realize that um almost everyone has a story like that that they can relate to not necessarily with anorexia but with a loved one or themselves dealing with something and trying to be perfect and trying to always do more but actually not realizing that you're self-destructing um so yeah we had we did have some really interesting reactions and that actually funnily enough we did a couple of q and a's after the shows and um a question that i'd get asked a lot was if it had affected me and whether it had changed my eating habits and or affected the way that i looked at food and if i was okay am i eating okay and i can understand why because you know, yeah, it, I'm sure for a lot of people, um, 
it's quite difficult to imagine like constantly reading this stuff or constantly doing a part like that and and not getting affected by it. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it affected me negatively. You know, it didn't at all impact my eating habits, but but for a little while it just made me think about what I was eating and just did it, but just from a point of interest. Um, you know, I would go, well, I wonder how many calories I'm eating and what would someone with an eating disorder think about my diet? And I think it does make you think differently about food and your relationship with food. And, um, and since I've, I've become quite interested in people's relationship with food. And I think that it's something that's so, can be so ingrained in you from a young age and can be, you know, your parents can be an influence, the things you eat, the people you grew up with. Um, and I find it really interesting now observing people's eating habits and the stories behind them because everyone has habits, whether or not they realise it or not. Everyone has a certain way that they eat food or an order that they eat food in or foods that they won't touch or foods that they don't like the texture of. Um, and for some people, that can that can manifest in a disorder. Um, and for a lot of people, they just have regular eating habits, but they're habits. I've been getting hungry a lot lately because of the exercise. So here's what I'll do. I have a couple of mouthfuls of food, then count to 100, then wait. After a little while, you're not even hungry anymore. You know that guilty feeling you get after eating a big meal? Well, I've started getting that bad when mum cooks. Like when she makes something from scratch, she knows I like, like spag bowl. She'll call me to come down. Shelley, food's ready. I'll walk into the kitchen and mum will be sitting at the table. The plates, knives, forks and glasses will all be spread out in front of her neatly over the clean white tablecloth. I'm guessing she wants to spend some quality time with me. Have a catch up with her one and only daughter. I start telling her what I've been up to and how I'm finally doing something I enjoy. I can tell she's impressed. Oh, is that what you've been up to? I didn't think you'd keep it up this long. Maybe one day you'd like to become a fitness instructor. Yeah, Mum, maybe. She carries on talking, but I'm not even listening anymore. I start thinking about the times when Mum would make something like spag bowl and I'd happily stuff my face with it without even thinking about it. I'd eat loads, then ask for seconds. This time I'm not feeling so good about it. I finish eating and Mum's like, you enjoyed that, didn't you? You always love spag bowl, don't you? Yeah. Why are you asking me for you know I do? She goes, all right, love, calm down. It was only a question. No, because you're telling me what I like. When didn't you just see me stuff my big fat face like a pig right in front of you? Do you want to make me feel any worse about it? She looks at me upset. I should feel bad, but she deserved it. She pushed me too far, and I'm not that overly sensitive little girl anymore. Mum composes herself for a second. I don't know what's about to happen. I brags myself, then she lets rip. And to think, here I was, happy that you were finally becoming a mature young adult, and you come out with the same old nonsense as usual. You and your father are so similar, it's unbelievable. You remember when you were young and all you worried about was if you had enough money for sweets after school. 
or the days when you'd have your birthday party at McDonald's with your little mates and you'd eat everything that was put in front of you. Well, I miss those days. Back in the day, I'd have dinner with mum and she'd say, finish everything on your plate or you won't get any dessert. And I'd be so upset at the risk of getting no dessert that I'd force myself to eat everything just to get to that glistening mountain of ice cream or that crunchy and sweet apple crumble and custard. Half an avocado and a ravita. Mum's waiting for me to quit. I see her watching me. I'll come downstairs in the morning and she'll be getting ready for work. She'll come into the kitchen and I'll be sitting at the kitchen table and she'll be watching me the whole time, waiting to see if I crack. If I'm going to quit everything and throw it all away and raid the fridge, but I won't. I don't. I do have a yoghurt though, a little one. I know I shouldn't, because even if it says low fat on it, it's still a dairy product and I'm trying to cut out dairy completely. Half an avocado, a raw vita, and a low-fat yoghurt. I do my exercises in my room now, because when I'm jogging, I keep getting funny looks from, like, pervy men or bitchy girls. And obviously, the new me isn't going to have it, so I'm like, what? Can I help you? They never say anything back, but I know it's jealousy. It's either jealousy or it's that. You see it? Don't lie, I know you see it. That bit there. I need to get rid of it. I want to get rid of it. I want to have a fire gap. Half an avocado, half a ravita, a low-fat yoghurt and a stick of celery. That was a section from Strawberry Starburst, written by Bram Davidovich, performed by Mariam Grace and directed by Eleanor Rushton. I think one interesting thing about food, and based on what we were talking about earlier, which is sort of not just telling stories by writing things down on a page, but this idea of expressing things is food is such an amazing way to tell the story of yourself. So people either recreating dishes they had as a child or cooking, um, you know, like making food from their or their parents, cultures or countries, things like that. Like that idea of, I want to, share something about myself with you, eat this thing, or let's go and eat this thing, or try this, or just taste a bit of this, which I think is such an interesting extra dimension of storytelling. Do you know what your thing would be? Well, like my memory food. Your memory food, yeah. Oh, blimey. Um, I feel like it might be my grandmother's trifle. Incredibly alcoholic. I can't believe I was allowed to eat it as a child, but I was. And it was great. Maybe that, maybe that is not trifle to me unless it tastes really just like that, I think. Just like booze. Amaretto-y booze, cream, there's no jelly. Um, it's all, yeah, cream, bit of like creme pat, some good, good sponge fingers, almonds. I think what mine would be my mum's roast dinner. But it would be in conjunction with... So that's a particular meal that still happens and is an ongoing memory. Is it a specific meat? Turkey. It's her roasties, though, that make it. They're mm. better than any roast potato I've ever encountered wow. anywhere else. It's every year, textbook. Wow. It's incredible. But a much earlier memory... Was this Christmas dinner? Christmas dinner. Okay. 
um, is uh, my granddad, he died when I was five, um, used to give us little shandies, specifically in little tankards. <laughs> <laughs> and the tankard was about three inches tall. But I, if you died when I was five, I was clearly three. Let's say inches tall. Inches tall. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Made spe- specifically with a really, really crap lager and like a thimble of lemonade. And I just have like through that, I can remember how my granddad smelled. I can remember the sound of the cupboard in the in the council flat where him and my nan used to live. Um, I know. It, yeah, it, it was a really odd. And, and then like we'd probably be having fish and chips from the chippy up the road kind of thing. So I can smell the vinegar. That's really good. What we really wanted to explore in this episode was the variety of ways that food intersects with people's everyday lives, which in turn often explains why it comes up so much in storytelling. It's that universal connector. Whether you like it or not, whether it's there or not, it's such a base human experience that it's something that we all come back to. So thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed our choice menu of content, we would love it if you would subscribe to the show. Maybe recommend us to a friend or even write us a lovely review on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can. On Twitter, we are at StoryEtcPod, or you can email us at StoryEtcPod at gmail.com. Particularly if you have a short story or play you'd like us to consider for future episodes, or maybe if you're an actor and you want to work with us in the future too. We're always on the lookout for new stories and new voices. So join us next month for health. Story Etc. was produced and presented by Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill Marson, who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Rachel White and Mariam Grace. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble. Thanks for listening. <laughs>